Good morning. Uh, like everybody said, my name's Tim. I'm the worship minister here. Uh, and uh, like Mike read, we're going to be taking a look at 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 7, verses 32 through 40. So why don't you go ahead and turn there. And while you do that, I'll tell you a little bit of a story about a trip that Kelsey and I took a few years ago. It was actually several years ago uh, <clears throat> because it was, I think Kelsey was pregnant with her first. Uh, we have three now, okay? And so it's, it's a while back. You know, many, many lives have been lived since then. Um, <clears throat> but we, we used to take these trips with these friends of ours down to this, uh, any body of water really. Uh, and so we found this uh, lake house in Austin and we, we found a nice spot that was like right on the shore and we were super excited. And so we all went down to sort of this last hurrah before uh, Kelsey and I had our first kid. It was just going to be this great uh, fun time at the lake house. And uh, another thing you have to know about me is I love water. I like being on a river. You know, Kelsey and I just went to a beach. I like being on a lake. I just love being around water, but especially being on water, like on a boat, okay? That's like the epitome of amazing relaxation for me is just being on a boat on the water, not even necessarily doing anything. As soon as I'm on a boat, I just sit there and I go, I've achieved happiness. This is perfection. And I love it for whatever reason. Kelsey says that I look so relaxed whenever I'm on a boat. She calls it my boat face because I just, everything just, I'm just like, everything's great. She's like, what are we, are we going to do this? I'm like, whatever. That's great. I'm on a boat. I feel great. So the only problem was we, we sort of got this house right on the shore and this water's like calling to me, come, come, you know, drive a boat in the lake. The problem was I don't have a boat, you know, you know, worship minister. Yeah, I don't have a boat. So if any of y'all have a boat, you're welcome to give me one. I'll take it if you keep up the maintenance costs as well, <clears throat> but we don't have a boat. <clears throat> and so we called around and we're like, hey, let's rent a boat because I just want to get on the water. And it was so expensive, especially if you're like, can I rent a boat in 30 minutes? And they're like, no, for like $2,000 you can. And so it was really weird. So we just didn't have a boat. So we kind of settled for the next best thing, which was our little Airbnb that we stayed at, uh, stayed at. It came with two boats, actually. But I use that term boat loosely. It was a canoe uh, with one oar, and it's some sort of spider infestation because they never use it. And then a paddle boat, okay? Which is not a boat, it's more like a drifting plastic box, okay? Paddle boats are those things, it's got like bicycle, you know, you pedal it like a bicycle. It's got these paddles that kind of make the boat go forward. Like every 2,000 rotations, you move five feet. And so that's what we had. And I was like, you know what? We gotta make it work. The other thing is we had our friends with us. So it's me, my pregnant wife, Kelsey, and then our friends Lauren and Garrett, and then they had some like pointless dog, a Yorkie poo. I don't know what that means. It's a type of dog that looks like if you like dropped it in the water, it's just gonna go to the bottom, okay? So that's our crew, and we need to find a way to get that crew out into the water. And so me and Garrett, we think of a great idea. Here's what we'll do. We'll take the paddle boat, that'll sort of be the tractor, and the trailer will be our canoe behind us. And we'll, we'll tie it, and so it'll be me and Garrett with our brute leg strength, just paddling us forward, and then the girls and the dog will just sit in the back, and that's how we'll get out on the water. And so that's what we did. We were not the coolest, uh, most streamlined looking vessel on, uh, on Lake Travis that day, but we got somewhere. I mean, we were moving at least. The problem is, if you know that lake, there are a bunch of like gazillionaires, all these millionaires' mansions on the shore that can all see us in our watercraft, our watercrafts chugging along. And a lot of people, these, uh, a lot of the people that we saw that day in particular, they were like out like having a party, like on, on, on their big Texas lake yacht. And they're just hanging out, like drinking champagne, like, oh, we're so awesome. And they see us coming along. They're like, what is that? 
And we're sitting there, we're like, you know, pedaling as best we can, going like three miles an hour. And so they would just start laughing at us. And what my buddy Garrett would always say, anytime someone was like laughing, like, hey, you fellas okay, stuff like that, he would say, the old ball and chain. He'd just point to the ladies behind us. As we're just, we're dying, we're like sweating, and they're just sitting there kind of like going along, like this is the most boring, this isn't even fun, it's nothing like being on a boat. But that was, we got on the water, that's all I wanted to do, and mission accomplished. It was a fun memory. To this day, Garrett and I will still use this sort of phrase. Like if Kelsey's like, hey, I left my sunglasses in the house, can you go get them? I'm like, ill ball and Jane, slowing me down in life. And so, yeah, use it with your wife, she'll love it, she'll love it, she'll love that joke. So the reason I tell you that story is because this text, I cannot help but have this memory sort of burned into my mind of me and Garrett driving this paddle boat with our wives behind us. It's just seared into my mind because Paul, as he's addressing the topic of singleness in this passage, people that are not yet married and some of whom have this lifelong gift of singleness, Paul is going to encourage these folks to consider the weight, no pun intended, uh, the weight of marriage. Consider the weight of marriage. Consider whether or not it would be best for them to be bound to a husband or a wife when as a single person, they could do whatever they want. They can go wherever they want. They can serve the Lord however they want. They don't have any of these prior obligations to a wife or a husband. They're not tied down. And so had I been a single dude in the same situation at that house wanting to get on the river, I had a canoe with one oar, I just would have gone. I just would have gone wherever. I would have explored. It would have been great. I could have brought my buddy Garrett along too. Just two dudes in a lake in Austin. We would fit right in. But I had to, we were tied down. We were tied down to our wives. We had to, we had to bring our wives along with us. Those possibilities were, were narrowed for us. Being married limits all of the potential ways, all the potential things you could do to serve the Lord. And so if you're single, Paul's point today is consider staying that way so that you might be free to devote yourself to the Lord without anything slowing you down. So let's pray and then we'll get into this really kind of weird text. Father, we thank you uh, for another opportunity to gather, to worship together, to study your word together. I pray that you would teach us this morning, make us a people who value your kingdom above all else, and make us a people marked by love as we follow the example of your son. We confess now that we cannot seek first your kingdom. We can do nothing apart from you. And so we, we just confess this morning that we need you. We need your spirit. We need your grace. Teach us now. Lord, transform us. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So let's read 1 Corinthians seven thirty-two through 34a. There you go. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. So there you go, fun text. You came here looking for something encouraging. You even fought with your wife on the way here and Paul's just gonna add insult to injury, okay? What on earth is going on here? Like I mentioned, Paul has been addressing the single people among the Corinthian congregation over the past few weeks after having spent plenty of time talking to the marrieds. He had already talked to the married people. If you can remember back that far, I mean, how could you forget? I've never seen Zach more excited to preach a sermon in my life about all of his sermons on, on the married folks. And so he already covered the married people, but then he started talking to the singles. Last week, we saw this in verse 25 of chapter seven. He said, now concerning the betrothed, 
meaning the, this word here is literally virgins. That's what that says, or the not yet married. Paul says, now concerning these single people, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He's saying, here's my advice. And as we saw last week, his advice was that if you, single people, if you do get married, you will have earthly troubles that those who remain single won't have to deal with. That was Paul's text. You'll be pulled away from certain ministry opportunities in order to serve your spouse or your family. And so Paul's advice, though as he clarified, is not a command, okay, not a command from the Lord, is that it's easier to remain single for the sake of serving the Lord. So that was last week. This week, he's just gonna reiterate his argument. Okay, he has to spend a little more time lifting up the gift of singleness because the advice to remain single is very countercultural among the Corinthians, much like it is today. When I, when I tell you that I have a friend who's 40 years old, who's been single his, own, his whole life and he has no interest in getting married, you go, he sounds weird. What's wrong with him? Why is he like that? It, it's so crazy to our culture. There's even a, a, a movie dedicated to the 40-year-old virgin. And, the, and the, whole, the whole bit of that line is, that's hilarious that someone would be 40 years old and a virgin would still be single. That's crazy. I'm not recommending the movie. I'm just saying that the idea of someone who is a normally functioning adult choosing to be single, even this lifelong gift of singleness, is crazy in our culture, even in evangelical culture. And so it was also strange to the Corinthians as well. And so Paul's gonna spend a little more time lifting up this gift of singleness in our text this morning. But lest you married people in the room think, oh, okay, then this means it's sitting for me. This is a single people text. I'm a married people text. I'm a married person. I'm a married people text. (laughs) I don't have to pay attention. I don't have to worry about it. Let me encourage you, this text should very much so matter to you. Because not only because it's God's word, so everything should matter to you that's within this text, but especially if you're discipling people who are single, right? Do you have children? Are you in community with people who are single? You ought to be. Do you have friends that are single? Then this is God's word to you. He's equipping you with what you need to obey his commands and to teach others to do likewise. The scriptures are given to us, not just in texts that are for you know, individuals, not just for, the, our, our, oh, here's my text, here's my book of the Bible that's for me. The Bible is for Christ's bride. The Bible is for the body. And you have a role and responsibility to play in the discipleship of Christ's bride. So don't tune it out. Rant over, let's begin. Verse 32, Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. Now, he's not talking about anxiety like we tend to think of it, okay? He's not talking about, it's not this passage about how not to be anxious. You know, Paul's 10 steps to have a less anxious life or something. That's not what Paul's doing here. He's saying he wants the unmarried to be free from the sort of anxieties that come with married life. And some Bible translations will actually use the word concerns here or preoccupations. And I think that's actually a better way of describing Paul's point. The ESP's not wrong. That's just a a better way of describing what exactly Paul is aiming to talk about. It's these things, these cares, these concerns, these things that preoccupy the minds of married people but don't really affect people who are single. Okay, that's what he means by anxieties. And that's why he continues in verse 32 saying, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. So let's just spend a little bit of time on this this first half. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. In case you're not aware, being anxious or concerned with the things of the Lord is basic Christianity. 
That's basic Christianity. If you're a Christian, that is your primary concern in all things. What is pleasing to the Lord? Seeking first the kingdom of God, as Jesus puts it in, in Matthew 6. Paul uses similar language in his prayer for the church in Colossae, Colossians 1, 9 through 10. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, Colossians, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so whether single or married, the Christian life is one of concerning ourselves, orient orienting our lives around walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, doing what is pleasing to God, regardless of your marital status. And so because this man is a Christian, because the unmarried man is a Christian, he's anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's his primary and singular obligation. So if a single guy wants to take a new job, what does he do? He does it. But he does have to be concerned with one thing, that he does it in a manner that is worthy of God. That's what he has to think about. If a single dude wakes up tomorrow, he wants to move to some random country, the Czech Republic or whatever. All he has to do is do it in a manner that's worthy of God. That's all he has to do. And then you know, probably get a job there. I don't know what they do there, build cars or something. But that's all he has to worry about. That's his only obligation. I had a, a friend of mine uh, who was single, and he uh, decided one day, I guess it was a lifelong dream, but whatever. This seems like a one-day decision. He said, I want to be a professional wrestler. And not like, the, like, not like a respectful thing that you're going to see in the Olympics in a few months or whatever, but like a makeup, tights, you know, are you ready to, you know, that guy. He wants to do that. That's what he wanted to do. And because of this, he went to a, this no joke, <laughs> a professional wrestling school in Canada, because that's apparently where, where you go. So this guy's living in Texas, and one day he wakes up and he goes, you know what, I'm going to be a professional wrestler. He moves to Canada, starts going to wrestling school, which I don't even know. You learn to like how to fall there without like looking like you actually got hurt. You learn how to do like fake punches and spoiler alert, it's fake. You have to learn how to, you know, you got to work on your persona. I remember having conversations with him. He's like, yeah, I really got to work on my entrance, like how to, you know, enter the room and make a statement. I was like, your life is weird. I don't understand at all. I don't know, this Canadian wrestling school, they probably had to learn how to say sorry if they accidentally hit their opponent or something like that. It's a bad Canada joke, sorry. But uh, that's what he did. And all he had to concern himself with was walking in a manner that was worthy of God. And 10 months after he'd been there, guess what, he dropped out. (laughs) He thought, Canadian wrestling school is weird. All my friends were right to say so. And he moved back to Texas, and guess what? He can do that. Because he's a single dude, not bound to anything, but the obligation to honor God, to do what is pleasing in the sight of God. He's an idiot, but he's a Christian, and he can do that. The married man, though, doesn't have such freedom. Paul continues, but the married man is anxious about worldly things. In addition to the simple, the basic Christianity stuff, for example, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. He has things pulling him in two different directions. His, in other words, the married man has these additional obligations, additional responsibilities to concern himself with in addition to walking in a manner that is pleasing to God. And Zach talked about this last week. You know, if the married man wants to take a new job, 
He has to consider how that's gonna change, how that change will affect his wife, his, his kids, his family. Say he wants to grow his business, you know? That's great, grow your business to the honor of God. Ooh, but I actually have to have a relationship with my family. I actually have to be home sometimes. I actually have to parent my children. And so he has these additional obligations. And that's what Paul's referring to when he talks about the married man concerning himself with worldly things. He's not talking about sinful things, things that are evil. That's not what he means by, by worldly. It'd be better to understand this as these obligations of the world which are just not eternal, not non-eternal obligations, the things which are temporary concerns in comparison to eternity. And so the scholar who's sort of the subject matter expert when it comes to 1 Corinthians, this guy Anthony Thistleton, uh, describes Paul's meaning here this way. He says, the married man finds himself apportioned to both his wife and to the Lord. And it's this parceling out of time, attention, energies, and tasks that means he's pulled in two directions. Or as the ESV translates it, his interests are divided. Married men have obligations that single men just don't have. And these obligations limit all of the various ways that they could go about serving the Lord. And so to be clear, Paul's not saying that you have to choose between God and pleasing your wife. That that's the fork in the road. You gotta just pick one. Who's your greater, who are you the, the, who's your greater master or something like that. That's not what Paul's saying. But rather that one of the ways that the married man is obligated to please God is through this channel, is through his obligation to please his wife. He's been called by God to do what is pleasing in the sight of God, and that looks like pleasing the one he's committed his life to, caring for her, loving her, doing what is best for her and his family. And that therefore limits your opportunities for ministry. And so for example, I called a buddy and asked him to be here today, if he could lead worship today. And he's a married guy, but I called him, I said, hey, could you, could you lead worship? And he was like, oh, that sounds great. I would love to do that. That sounds awesome. I'm, I'm in. I'm out of town right now but I'll just drive back Saturday night and I'll be there Sunday morning. It's going to be great. I was like, awesome. You're, you're the man. He goes, let me just check with my wife first and then I'll, I'll call you back in an hour, like confirm, just talk to the wife, whatever. And so he, calls, he hangs up the phone, calls me back an hour later and he's like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like a classic husband, he has no idea the itinerary of his trip out of town. He's like, yeah, we're like planning this party for my wife's parents, and it's on Sunday afternoon out of town. There's no way. I can't do it. I can't, I can't make it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and had he been a single guy, guess what? He, that conversation would have never happened. He just would have come here when he wanted to. Saturday night, been here to serve the Lord, serve the church. <laughs> but instead, God has called him specifically to love his wife, to do what is pleasing to his wife, and so that's, that's what he did. He's, he is where he ought to be. A ministry opportunity, yes, called him here at Parkway. It's pulling him in this direction, but God is commanding him to love and serve his wife, and that pulls him toward their parents' party, as it should. And so this restriction, this narrowing of ministry opportunities is what Paul has in view here. Because there are a ton of needs in the church that require individuals who are free to serve in a variety of ways that married people are often unable to tend to. But Paul encourages those who are currently single to consider the value of their gift and their freedom when it comes to serving the Lord and his church. He's not critiquing marriage, but rather highlighting for those who are currently single Marriage adds to your plate these additional things, and Paul would love for there to be more folks like him. Paul says he wishes everyone was as he is. 
Because there are a lot of needs in the church that Paul wishes that he could serve himself and he needs more folks to be able to be free to, not tied to something else to be able to serve. And then verse 34 continues. Uh, he, Paul wants us to know he's, he's not just talking about single or married men. This argument can be applied to the, the single ladies in the congregation as well. And so he says, an unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So whether you're a man or a woman, once you're married, your ability to answer the call for any and every ministry opportunity becomes limited. But singleness doesn't come with that sort of limitations. There's nothing to pull you away from ministry opportunities. You can be 100% devoted to the Lord wherever the service of him and his church is needed. And that's what he's saying, especially this little phrase, how to be holy in body and spirit. The, the unmarried woman is anxious about how to be holy in body and spirit. A lot of people get thrown off by that phrase. Ooh, what does it mean, in body and in spirit? No, it's not like that. Paul views a person as a unity of body and spirit. That means the whole person. All he's saying here is he's, she, she's concerning herself with how to be 100% and all that she is, holy, set apart, devoted to God. That's his only point there. How to be holy, set apart for God in all that she is, both body and spirit. And so essentially his point is that the single person, male, female, doesn't matter, but those are the only two options. But male or female, the single person has the benefit of less limitations and hindrances when it comes to devoting themselves to the Lord. And then he clarifies that in verse 35. He says, I say this for your own benefit, single people. Listen up, single people. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So why does Paul keep encouraging the single people to remain single if, you know, if they don't feel compelled to get married? It's for this, to promote good order and to secure their undivided tension attention to the Lord. But first notice that he, he mentions, he clarifies once again, he's not trying to hold back anyone back from actually getting married. In fact, Paul has really strong words for people that would go so far to, to restrain people from getting married or, or they would forbid marriages altogether. Remember, Zach referenced this text from 1 Timothy last week, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. AKA those who forbid marriage, forbid what God has not, who add commands to the scriptures. We call it legalism. Paul calls it demonic. Don't be a legalist. Don't be demonic. And Paul's trying to clarify, I'm not doing that. I'm not forbidding anyone from getting married. But in case someone's still tempted to think that that's what Paul's forbidding, he clarifies, he's not trying to restrain anyone from getting married. And it's sort of this play on words here. Paul, the, the word literally there is to tie down. I'm not trying to tie anyone down. He's not trying to restra restrain or tie someone down. He's trying to keep people who are single, especially those with the lifelong gift of singleness, from being tied down by the potentially unnecessary bonds of marriage. He says, I'm not binding you to anything. I'm trying to keep you free. I'm trying to keep you free to serve the Lord in whatever capacity is needed. So he says, I say this for your own benefit. It's for your benefit, not to lay some sort of restraint upon you, but to keep you freed up to serve the Lord, to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And what he's saying is that he's trying to promote 
how one should order their life, to promote a good order to one's life, to encourage you to prioritize your life and order your life appropriately with undivided devotion to the Lord being primary, being above all else. And since marriage can add more to your plate and tie you down to various obligations, Paul's urging singles, those who are currently single, to consider the freedom that they have been given. You're not tied down in the way that married folks are. You can literally serve the Lord with no one pulling you in another direction. And you can drive the boat forward with no one holding you back behind. Yes, your parents are always asking you about it when you go home. Are you talking to anyone or something like that? And yes, your friends, your lame friends are always trying to set you up with guys that are losers. They're like, "I, I met someone today. He's a warm body with eyes. Here he is. You should get together. Yes, you'll deal with all of that and all these annoyances, but you're not bound to your parents' you know, desire for you to get married. You're not bound by your friend's annoying desire for you to get married. Instead, you're free. You're free to serve the Lord however you want. So don't throw such a gift away for the sake of temporary cultural pressures or peer pressure, whatever worldly anxieties might convince you that you have to be married in order to live life to the full. Instead, in whatever you do, marry or not, prioritize your devotion to the Lord. That's Paul's point, to order our, right, our life correctly, secure his undevoted, undivided devotion to the Lord. That leads us to verse 36. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. Now, this is where things get really strange for Bible translators. Verses 36 as well as 37 and 38 present several issues when it comes to determining exactly what Paul is meaning here because the terms he uses in Greek are slightly open to interpretation. He uses a lot of ambiguous and vague vocabulary in verses 36 through 38 which make it difficult to nail down what he's pointing to specifically. And so it's similar to listen to, if you've ever done this, you've listened to a, a theological equipping class from here, from Parkway, on like Spotify or you know, Apple Podcasts or whatever, and you don't have the notes in front of you. You don't actually have the notes that we keep referring to the whole time. So it's like, and here's some, you know, and then we're talking about the Trinity, look at the nose on that guy. And you hear us say something like that, and you're like, what? What is he talking about? Had you had the notes, you'd see there's this real ugly guy that we're pointing to, but you don't know that listening to the audio. You're not a part of that same context. Or sometimes we'll even do it in sermons, where we'll be like, one, one side is always like this, and they're, they're thinking this way, and then there's others that swing the pendulum too far this way. And you can definitely do it this way, but you can't do it that way. But if you do it here, that might still be wrong. This is, may seem central, but it's not. Here is where we need to be. And the people listening in the audio are like, what? What did he just say? This is, here is there, and and maybe here, they have no idea, because they're not a part of the context. We don't have to be super specific. We can be sort of vague and ambiguous, because y'all are here in the context. And and we're pointing, and you you know what we're actually talking about. And the Corinthians have written Paul a letter. And he's answering specific questions that they've, they've written in that letter. <clears throat> but we're not a part of that context. We can't be sure what Paul is pointing to or even who he's addressing when he starts talking about things like not behaving properly or you know, we're not sure what the phrase passions are strong, what that phrase is actually, what it actually means. And it just continues on in verses 37 and 38. And so these two uh, scholars who wrote a great commentary on 1 Corinthians, Roy, don't know how to say his name, Chiampa, and uh, Brian Rosner, uh, they said this about this passage. 
Reading other people's mail can be confusing. There's probably no better example of this problem in Paul's letters than this. The passage is dogged by uncertainty concerning its subjects and by ambiguous terms. And so because of this confusion, scholars are divided really into two camps, okay? Over here and over here. I'm just kidding, I'm not gonna do that. (laughs) There are two possible interpretations of this text. The ESV translates the passage according to one of the views, according to their view, which is this, that Paul is telling any man who is engaged to be married and is behaving inappropriately or improperly toward his fiance, his betrothed, he's telling that man that he should just go ahead and get married so that he doesn't keep acting inappropriately. Basically, if you find you have this overwhelming sex drive and you just can't contain yourself, then don't try to be single. Just go ahead with the marriage. You obviously don't have the gift of singleness, so just get married. It is no sin. Okay, so let me read all the verses, 36 through 38, in context so this is clear. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his his betrothed, his fiance, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his fiance, his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Okay? So just sum that up one more time. There's some Corinthians possibly who are engaged. And some of them are behaving inappropriately, maybe even committing some sort of sexual immorality. And Paul's going to say, don't spend another second thinking, oh, maybe I might be single. No, just get married. Just get married and stop sinning. Go go and sin no more, okay? But if you can't control yourself, or if you can control yourself, you don't have this overwhelming drive to just get married, and you've determined in your heart not to marry the person you're engaged to, then that's great too. They might not like that, but that's great, okay? Because you have obviously this gift of singleness and you can live your life completely devoted to the Lord, that would be even better, hooray. Okay, so that's, that's the ESV's view. The other view, the alternative view, is very different. And it's actually the view that everyone in church history has held uh, up until the 20th century. Okay, so the ESV's uh, interpretation is slightly new among uh, scholars throughout church history. The view for most of church history has not been that this is a word to engage dudes who are messing around with their fiancés, but instead, it's this address to fathers, to heads of households, to fathers who are responsible for marrying off their daughters or, or female members in, uh, in their household. And as they hear Paul talk about the importance of singleness and this gift of singleness, they go, I'm like signing the contract on my daughter's arranged marriage right now. Am I sinning? Is that bad? You tell me it's, it's going to be so much harder for her to devote her life to the Lord. And I'm, am I sinning by doing this? And in case you didn't know, yes, mar- marriages are arranged back then. You know, this whole idea that you have, a, you have a choice in who your spouse is, that's a relatively new idea. Your parents would choose for you or the head of the household would choose for you. And he's not looking for the you know, prettiest gal at the ball or the guy with the kindest eyes. He's not looking for that. Typically, your parents are looking for someone who's going to take care of you socially. It's going to lead to a great social outcome. They want to, you know, move on up to the west side or the east side or whichever it is. They want to move up in their social, you know, climb the social ladder. They want to have resources for their retirement. You know, I mean, the parents aren't going to, they don't have a 401k or whatever. They, they have to rely on their kids actually paying for their living. So they're walking around the market like one camel, one camel. That guy has eight camels? What's up, Benjamin? Come talk to my daughter, please. 
And so they, you know, your parents want someone that's going to be able to provide for them as well. Sometimes even it's like this treaty between two nations. We talked about King Henry uh, the other day, you know, the king of England marrying this like princess or queen of, of Spain, that daughter, that uh, marriage was arranged as like a peace treaty. And so you have all of these different reasons for um, arranging a marriage, a marriage, and that's sort of how things went back then. And so in Greco-Roman culture, uh, this decision to give the daughter in marriage was actually the responsibility of the father. So that's a lot of background. Uh, but now you know, you know. With that in mind, the alternative view to the ESV <clears throat> believes that Paul is speaking to these fathers that love the Lord, they love the kingdom, they want to do what's best for their daughters, and so Paul's going to help them think through whether they should marry off their daughters or not, specifically on the chance that one of their daughters has this gift of singleness. They don't want to squander this God-given gift in their daughter. And so by way of example, this is how the NASB, another conservative translation of the Bible, this is how they translate verses 36 through 38, according to this traditional view. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter... If she is past the point of her youth, she's past her youth, she's of marrying age, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, meaning you haven't signed a contract, you don't owe somebody your daughter in marriage. You've got authority over your own will, you're not under any sort of constraint. And has decided this in his heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Notice that's really different from the ESV's view, right? It's really different. And again, because Paul's language is so vague, and because we're not directly involved in the context of the Corinthian church, because we're reading their mail, both interpretations are possible. Both interpretations are plausible, okay? The Corinthians know exactly what Paul's talking about. He's addressing things they wrote to him about, but we're not a part of that context. And so the exact meaning is slightly ambiguous, okay? I happen to lean, maybe you noticed, like 60-40 toward the NASB interpretation, but you could convince me with a really good argument that I'm wrong and that the ESV's ter- interpretation is better. But regardless of the precise meaning, here's Paul's point, which is no different than how it has been. I'd rather anyone who's single and doesn't feel the strong desire or need to get married, just not get married. That's Paul's point. If you're engaged, you're doing inappropriate things, you need to get married, go and sin no more. If you're a father, you need to give your daughter in marriage out of some sort of obligation, you're constrained, you have no choice in the matter, you're not sinning, go ahead, let them marry. But if anyone is unmarried, if anyone is single and has no reason to be or no obligation to get married, as Paul said in verse 26, I think it's good for a person to remain as they are. If you're married, stay married. If you're single, don't bind yourself to someone who will complicate your undivided devotion to the Lord. If you want to get married, do it. That's no sin. Just know that with marriage comes worldly troubles. Paul says he would like to spare us of that. That's 36 through 38. We'll continue with verses 39 through 40 and then we'll be done. 39 says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. And in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. So this sort of reads like this random extra thought 
that Paul has tacked on to the end of all that he said about marriage and singleness. And some scholars believe that Paul is just giving a little more of a detailed answer to something he, he already started uh, to give earlier on in 1 Corinthians regarding widows and their remarriage. But I think it's actually more of a summary statement of all that he has said. He's reminding the Corinthians of the seriousness of the weight of marriage, that it is a serious commitment. It's for life. So if you're going to get married, have this perspective in mind. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Great dude or loser, she's tied bound to him as long as he lives. And so Paul's trying to drive home this point that the fact that marriage comes with these limitations. And again, just so he's clear, he's not trying to bind anyone to an extra biblical command. And so he reiterates it once again. It's like the fourth time he's done it in chapter seven alone that an unmarried woman, in this case a widow, is free to marry somebody. She's free to marry whoever she wants. I like to imagine that there's some like annoying guy in the congregation that keeps asking like dumb questions to Paul. He's like, hey Paul, can unmarried women get married? Paul's like, great question, Clark, that's great. Uh, Yeah, they're free to marry. They can do more ministry stuff if they're single, but they're free to marry. The guy's like, what about virgins? He's like, what? Yes, single people can get married, they're free to marry, it's gonna limit their opportunities. What about widows? He's just like, goodness, turn it down. Clark, turn it down. If you're a person, you're single, you can get married. There you go. And so the widow's free to be married to whom she wishes. Just with one qualifier that Paul adds, that he be a Christian. That she marry someone only in the Lord. If a widow has her choice of husbands, She should limit her choices to those who are actually Christian. And I mean actually Christian, not like he goes to church sometime and his favorite book is Blue Like Jazz. I mean actually Christian. But rather, if you're gonna bind your life to a spouse and your priority is to serve the Lord, it would be helpful to make sure that person shares similar priorities because you're tied to that guy wherever he's gone. In Paul's opinion, she would actually be better off. He says happier. How controversial, how countercultural is that in our mind? She'd be happier to remain single? Don't think so. Paul says she would be happier if she just remained single and served the church. Paul knows that Christianity is hard. We'll see as we continue in 1 Corinthians, he talks about the, the, the imprisonment, the beatings, the suffering, the difficulty that comes with Christianity. And so he's saying that adding a family to that sort of life is gonna be more difficult. It's gonna come with its fair share of suffering. And so in his view, it's much happier just to choose to remain single. But once more, is he saying that to remarry is a sin? Nope. Is he saying that those who remain single, they love God more? Nope, we've talked about that in past weeks. He's simply saying that he couldn't do all that he's doing if he were married and he wishes there were more people with the same gifting like that to go around for the sake of the gospel. And finally, he ends with what seems to be a little bit of sarcasm. He says, and I think that I too have the spirit of God. He's writing to these Corinthians who believe themselves to be very, very spiritual. And they're being led astray in many ways by these false teachers among them who are are teaching in ways that are contrary to Paul. All the while, they're claiming their new theology is straight from the source, straight from the spirit. 
They hear the voice of the Spirit of God and that's where their new theology comes from. And so Paul ends chapter seven poking fun at these teachers who said ridiculous things. Guys that are maybe forbidding marriage or guys that have said, oh, if you're married, it's, it's, it's uh, more spiritual to abstain from sex with your spouse or whatever. He sort of pokes fun at these guys. He says, if you Corinthians have been convinced because men claim to have the Spirit, well then I too have the Spirit of God. Hopefully you'll listen to me and that will just as easily convince you as these other guys. And that's, that's our passage. That's 32 through 40. Now how do we apply a text like this to our lives? Well, if you're arranging your daughter's marriage, think about what, I'm just kidding, no, obviously not. Really, I think this text teaches us a couple of things. And I wanna look back at verse 35. Paul says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul says he wrote our text today to promote the proper ordering of our priorities, to order our lives appropriately so that we might devote ourselves to the Lord first and foremost. And in doing this, he makes two things really clear. First, that singleness is a gift. I think this text destroys our cultural assumptions around singleness, that singleness is inherently a bad thing. It's only something to, it's only something to escape rather than embrace. Embrace as a gift from God, even. We don't think of singleness as a gift. We think of singleness like it's a curse. And listen, that is unbiblical. That is not a Christian view of singleness. Singleness, just like marriage, is a gift from God. Marriage is a gift, singleness is a gift. Both are for the flourishing of God's people, meant to serve his purposes, his church, his kingdom, his people. Marriage is not something that anyone deserves or is owed or is even a necessity for all believers. It is rather a gift. And singleness is not a punishment. It's not a a defect. Singleness is not a curse. It is this advantageous, as Paul has just demonstrated, and gracious gift from God for the one to whom he gives it and those around them. So don't buy into the lie that to truly experience love and to be cherished and cared for and truly live a fulfilling life, one must first be married. Jesus says that he is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him will hunger and thirst no more. They'll hunger and thirst for nothing. In Christ, one finds fullness of life and love and care, not in a spouse. Whether you're married or single, you will never be fulfilled in your marriage unless you have Christ. And you'll never be fulfilled in your single life unless you have Christ. Marriage is meant to image Christ, not serve as a substitute. So the one who has life is the one who has Christ, married or not. Marriage and singleness are both gifts from God and singleness is not some sort of illness to be cured. So recognize the blessing that you have, those who are currently single. Certainly pray that the Lord might give you the gift of marriage if you desire it, but recognize that whether married or single, your hunger and thirst can never be satisfied but in Jesus. So regardless of your marital status, invest in that relationship first and foremost. Order your life appropriately so that you may secure your devotion to the Lord. Which leads us to the second application from this text. Really, it's a question that this text sort of implies. Where are your priorities not in good order? Where are your priorities out of order? What obligations and concerns demand your attention each and every day, and which of those have you inappropriately prioritized before a devotion to the Lord? 
If you're single, are you spending all your free time thinking about and searching for your perfect match? Or are you devoting yourself to the one from whom comes every good and perfect gift? Or, or, or anyone, what things do you willingly and actively put above your devotion to God, your devotion to walking in a manner worthy of the Lord? I can list a ton of examples here, but I'm gonna trust that you too have the spirit by whom you can actually discern your shortcomings or that you'll go to those who are in community around you or you'll go to your spouse or your friends and you'll ask them, where am I prioritizing my life, my life inappropriately? Where have I gotten my priorities out of order? That what's distracting me from a devotion to God? And if you, if you don't have anyone who can tell you that, let's, let's get lunch, you and me. I'd love to tell you your shortcomings. You know, you'll get a free lunch, but uh, yeah, just send me an email, it'll be great. <laughs> the truth is, we are all idolaters, all of us. We would all rather look to a created thing to satisfy us than trust our lives to our creator. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loves us. Even though we are so quick to run, to devote ourselves to lesser things, God has made us alive together with Christ, which is what we celebrate as we take communion. And so let's pray and rejoice in the grace of God as we partake in this meal together. Let's pray. Lord, we need your grace. We thank you that though we are constantly setting up for ourselves these idols, we, these things or people or opinions of people that we devote our lives to, we thank you that you have loved us, that you've redeemed us, that you have given your spirit to sanctify us and conform us to your image. Christ, the image of the invisible God. As we partake of communion, may we be honest about our sin, not hiding behind some sort of artificial, you know, we're not all that bad sort of veneer. I pray even now we would confess the fullness of our wrongs and embrace the fullness of Christ's righteousness. We cannot do this apart from your spirit. So be with us now as we celebrate your grace together. Amen.